We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The motorcycle gang Hell's Angels holds a special place in American legend and lore. It's been associated with crime and violence. Cops rarely want to hear that the Hell's Angels are coming to town. Well, one of its more prominent now former leaders is here. George Christie's in town to appear in a one-man play about his life, a life that included decades as leader of the Ventura, California Hell's Angels. Since his departure in 2011, he's been involved in a variety of occupations. The play, by the way, is titled Outlaw, and it opens tonight at the Westport Playhouse for a two-night run. George Christie joins me in studio. Great to have you with us, George. Thanks for uh, having me. The Hells Angels get a bad rap? Well, you know, Moley Marvin uh, and I were arguing with a police chief uh, back in the 70s, and, uh, you know, I told the police chief, I said, this is unnecessary. You're wasting a lot of money here. We were surrounded, uh, and uh, the chief said, well... You have a terrible reputation, and Moldy Marvin said, "Well, you, we do, and we worked hard for it." <laughs> so, you know, I, I guess it depends uh, who you talk to at what particular point in time uh, mm-hmm. uh, you're referring to. You know, there's been ups and downs. Uh, in 1979, we uh, were indicted by the federal government uh, up in San Francisco for racketeering. Mm-hmm. The first time they used the. Uh, racketeering influence, corrupt organization, charge against us. They traditionally used it Mm -hmm. for, you know, uh, traditional crime families. And there was a young prosecutor that uh, really was uh, uh, going after us, and that was Robert Mueller. I I read that, that uh, that's one of your first experiences with uh, this sort of uh, world, wasn't it? It it was, and, uh, uh, you know, it really opened my eyes up. I developed a relationship with uh, somewhat of a you know famous uh, civil rights uh, and criminal attorney Tony uh, Sarah, mm-hmm. who represented you know the uh, Black Panthers up there, and he represented the Indians on Alcatraz Island. I had a relationship with him, William Kunstler. Uh, so I've met some genius legal minds over the years. When you say you had a relationship with him, what what do you mean? Well. He represented me. <laughs> That's how you develop that type of revenue. <laughs> on what kind of charges, if I may he, ask? Tony Sarah represented me on a 59-count state racketeering charge mm-hmm. that uh, I spent a year in solitary confinement fighting this case. And the local district attorney was so alarmed that Tony Serra uh, came on board that uh, – he started chipping away at the foundation of the case, and it collapsed under its own weight. Mm-hmm. And they offered me uh, a to plead guilty to a tax charge, mm-hmm. and uh, which I did at his Tony's suggestion. So, so what kind of activities were you involved in, and, and was it part of the, the the Hell's Angels operation at the time? Well, I, I me personally, I had uh, a, a bike uh, a building business. I had a tattoo shop. I had a, uh, <laughs> a bail bonds company. I had a <laughs> concert promotion business that Bill Graham and uh, Jerry Garcia helped me establish. But I think the thing that really got under the skin of the district attorney's office is my 
daughter was the youngest person to ever pass the bar in California. She was 22 years old, and she established a criminal law uh, office, and she mm-hmm. appointed me as the administrator. And uh, that gripe people. So they never caught me doing anything illegal, but there was a lot of inferences, uh, allegations from informants and whatnot. And my son, who was a member of the club, uh, had conspired with another uh, gentleman. to They stole 750,000 Vicodin off of Air Force Base. So, you know, there was some crime there. I, I'm sure your daughter loves her dad, but what does she feel about dad's involvement with all of this? Well, I think that she's pretty happy that I walked away from it. Uh, you know, she probably holds a record for representing more Hells Angels than any other attorney in, you know, the United States. You you referred to the organization as a club, and everyone else calls it a gang. Well, you know, it's interesting because we call it a club. Other outlaw bike clubs call themselves clubs. If you talk to the local authorities, they uh, uh, target us as a street gang because it falls into their jurisdiction and it suits their needs for uh, funding and whatnot. If you talk to someone in the federal government, whoever it may be, as long as they're a federal agency, they refer to us as an enterprise or a, a criminal uh, organization. Uh, you know, we've been accused of being one of the larger uh, uh criminal empires in the world. You know, we're in every continent. You know, we even took the name from the uh, the slogan from the British Empire, the sun never sets on the Hells Angels. Mm-hmm. You know, I do I do a lot of lectures now. I do them for defense attorneys, colleges, uh, Monterey Naval Academy. I'm getting ready to go back there my second time. And I do stuff for Homeland Security, law enforcement, with the caveat that they can't censor me. I go there and I say whatever's on my mind. And, of course, I open it up and I get in some heated discussions with uh, uh, people that were formerly uh, uh, chasing me. Mm-hmm. And I tell them when they call us a criminal organization, I shouldn't say us because I'm no longer part of that uh, world. But we're an organization that isn't a criminal organization, but we are an organization full of criminals. Mm-hmm. And I, I concede to that. When you talk to these various groups, and what are you talking about? Are you explaining your life or your life story, or are you giving them advice on how to deal with the bad guys? What I give them advice on is I do explain my uh, uh, life story because they're fascinated by it. But the biggest thing Homeland Security is interested in now is uh, information sharing. And when I was uh, in the club, I had a heated discussion with uh, somebody in a meeting that I found out later was tape recorded. Uh, they were doing business with a, a terrorist group, and uh, I was really against it. And I wanted to, I felt that it should have been a rule, automatic kick out of the club, anybody get caught you know, interacting with uh, anybody that uh, narco-terrorists, whatever they may be. And the Homeland Security people came to me after I left the club, and uh, they said, look, we're thinking out of the box. We need to figure out a way to fight this terrorism. Mm-hmm. You, know, what's your, you know, what's your spin on it? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think? And so I talk about things like that. I don't give information that would uh, uh, get somebody prosecuted. The things I talk about are mostly adjudicated. They're in the past, but it's uh, how they failed as uh, uh, 
in their investigation techniques and whatnot, and they apply them to uh, uh, people coming into the country, uh, uh, terrorist suspects and whatnot. You, you say that you wouldn't uh, give any information that might get someone prosecuted. I think that would be quite dangerous for you if it you did be, that. It would be very dangerous for me. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the other leaders in the club uh, sent a message to me that, you know, you're getting too close to the police. And, uh, you know, I've always been I've always interacted with law enforcement, mm. and uh, as a leader, I had a vision, and my vision was to change the direction of the club, to interact with the other outlaw bike clubs, stop all the violence, and uh, you know, I, I had a pretty good run, but I, in the end, it, it failed. It unraveled. I had a lot of moratorium on uh, the wars between the bike clubs, but uh, in the end, it, uh, you know, it kind of failed. I would imagine it's a lot easier to get into an organization like that than to get out of it. Why, well, why and how did you get in and how did you get out? Well, you know, I, as a young uh, boy, I was standing on the street corner with my father. And he was talking to a, a gentleman, an Italian guy. And uh, you could hear this roar up the street. And I turned, and you could see this guy coming on this chopped Harley, and he had a the Levi vest with the sleeves cut off. I don't remember what his pat said. Uh, he had something on it, but I couldn't make it out. And that just stuck in my mind. And the guy talking to my father became so upset, and I thought, gee, this is a pretty powerful uh, position this guy's in, and he's not even paying attention to anybody. He was minding his own business, and after he left, uh, the man talking to my father looked at me and he spit on the ground and he told me, that's your America. And I thought, well, mm -hmm. I'll take it. All right. And uh, you, that, this was in the early 70s? 50s. In the 50s? That was in the 50s. I was a young boy. I was oh, about was the, leader, the leadership is when you became uh, uh, head of the Ventura. Right. And, well, actually, I became head of the Los Angeles Hells Angels. In 1966, I came back from the Marines, bought a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. uh, the Marine... Uh, uh, commandant of the unit I was in was not real happy, and he kind of let me know if the Marine Corps wanted me to have a motorcycle, they would have issued it to me. Yeah. And yeah. I drifted off, and I, I wound up working for the Department of Defense. Uh, I saw that. Yeah, but I, you know, I started hanging out with a bike club called the uh, Question Marks. They were a 1% bike club endorsed by the Hells Angels, and several of these guys became Hells Angels uh, ultimately. And they introduced me to a bike club called the Saint and Slaves, who later became Hells Angels. Mm -hmm. The Saint and Slaves took me up to Kern River, and I was up there, kind of a fledgling guy and, a, and an independent and the Hells Angels showed up there. That's why I went up there. Mm -hmm. I heard the Hells Angels were coming. And uh, the leader of the Los Angeles Hells Angels, old man John, took me under his wing. And, uh, you, know, he, you know, he was really hands-on with me. And I wound up becoming the vice president of the Los Angeles Hells Angels after a short, uh, you know, tenure in the club. And then later he turned the club over to me. So, so what does that involve, leadership of an organization like this? Well, you know, it's not – what everybody would think. You know, one of the things I did, and you'll find this interesting, is I <clears throat> was on the trademark board. Uh, we protected our intellectual property, uh, Hells Angels and the logo. They, uh, our attorneys were out of San Francisco. They were uh, Limbach, Limbach, and Sutton, who also had uh, uh, represented, they represented Levi Strauss, Coca-Cola, MasterCard. Mm -hmm. And uh, ultimately, the uh, uh, attorney's office was told by these other organizations they didn't want their brand brushing up against ours. And 
But before we departed them, they taught me a lot. They taught me about branding. They taught me about image. And they taught me how to use the media. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I became an expert at. I you know, was on 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace. I did all the media. Uh, uh, I was a liaison to all the media. And I became a liaison to the police as well and to other bike clubs because of that position. And, and using the media in what way? Basically to explain the organization, try to uh, defend it? How? Well, defend it. And yeah. this is what we did. In the past – we never responded. If a police officer made an allegation or a police agency, we just let it go. We kind of laughed it off. And I equated those uh, uh, people listening to these terrible stories as potential jurors after the uh, RICO trial. So I told the club, I said, look, you know, we got to get in front of this stuff. And I said, when the police make an allegation, if it's completely wrong, uh, we've got to get on the air with somebody and uh, we've got to defend ourselves. And I wound up uh, in that position because I thought of it. About 35 years, um, almost four decades. Four uh, decades, uh, yeah. Okay, so the decision to get out. I mean, uh, I imagine once you're in an organization like that, uh, you're pretty much uh, obligated to stay in forever. Well, you are. And, I, you know, it's interesting. There's a judge on the appellate court in Ventura. The California appellate court is located in Ventura, California. And I've known this judge because of my members, you know, being sentenced by him over the years. And I developed a relationship with him. I was always respectful in his courtroom, and we were cordial to each other. And I ran into him shortly after I left the club, and he looked at me, and he said, George, he goes, how do you quit the Hells Angels? And I said, Judge, you do it very carefully. Yeah. And, that, and that's what you do. I've been very cautious. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, in fear of my uh, life, but I'm very uh, uh, careful. And as they say in the Marine Corps, I watch my six. Uh, you know, I don't lose any sleep at night, but uh, – it's something I think about. Well, do you just announce, guys, I'm leaving, or do you just not show up for the next well, meeting? Well, I walked into the meeting, <clears throat> and I didn't announce it. My son, who was now a member, uh, uh, he'd been a member for almost 10 mm-hmm. years. I walked up to him, and I said, son, I got something to tell you. And he mm-hmm. said, what's that, Dad? And I said, I'm quitting tonight. And uh, he was shocked uh, because nobody ever saw it coming because I was completely dedicated up until the last mm-hmm. day that uh, I was a member. I walked in the meeting and I explained. I said, look, we're fighting wars on five fronts now. We were fighting every major bike club in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, we're run out of people to fight. And I said, historically, when you run out of people to fight, you turn inward. And I said, I don't want to be here for that. And I, I took my patch off, folded it up, and said, does anybody have anything to say? And the walk to the door uh, to cross that threshold out into the street was the longest walk I ever took. And nobody said anything. But later, two weeks later, they had a trial uh, without me, uh, and I told them. I made it very clear to them. I said, well, you know, at least the government uh, gives you the opportunity to come into the courtroom and face the charges. Mm -hmm. But they changed my status, uh, banned anybody in the club from talking or interacting with me. Including your son? My son, uh, because of what they were doing, my son walked away. So he's out of it now, he, too. Well, my son passed away as oh, well. well, sorry about that. Well, yeah, he yeah. got pneumonia and didn't realize it and went to sleep. And What were these fights with the other bike clubs all about? Well, we had two major wars going that were continuous. We had a war with the outlaws in, out of Chicago and Florida, and we had a war with a group of guys called the Mongols out of the West. And we were at war with them for one of the oldest reasons in the world, a woman. Uh, both a of these, woman? 
well, each two separate women, uh-huh. but we were they were that's how the fight started, and then of course it escalated. You know, law enforcement misinforms the public, and they're they're misinformed themselves. None of these fights are over drug territory. These mm-hmm. fights are over egos and people that have planted their flag and are very territorial. They're, you know, it's almost tribal-like. This is our area. Stay out of it. Don't infringe on it. And uh, if they do, uh, uh, you know, it usually winds up being a problem. How are these uh, fights fought? Well, the first fight I was at was in 1977. It was kind of a hand-to-hand combat uh, within – uh, months it escalated to machine guns and dynamite. Uh, they even uh, some of the guys in my club went so far as blowing up uh, a car at a funeral of the other rival bike club. And I actually got a phone call from Sam uh, Sam Sarantino, the underboss of the LA mob, and all he said to me was, "Really, George, at a funeral?" And I think he was sending a message because we were interfering in their cash flow. They couldn't do business. So, so when you fought, did you, you know, like arrange to meet someplace? No. Or, or just serendipitous. You, uh, you uh, run situation. into each other. Just somewhere. ran into each other. Individuals or as as a group. Both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, now this started in 1977, and you know we're now in 2018. In Riverside last year, Hell's Angel was killed by the Mongols at a gas station. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, two months prior to that, uh, two Mongols were killed uh, on the. Uh, Interstate 15 coming back from Las Vegas. So the war continues to rage. You, uh, in, in the material I have uh, about you, you portray yourself as a peacekeeper during your time in Ventura. How so? Well, I, I went to prison in 1986, 87. I got found not guilty. And, and uh, when I got to the prison, the first thing I asked uh, a senior member there was, who do we have a problem with in here? And he laughed and he goes, we don't fight in prison. And I said, what do you mean we don't fight? I said, there are Mongols in there, outlaws, banditos. And he said, yeah, they're all in here, but we don't fight. And I, you know, I contemplated and I thought about it. I meditated on it for a year. That's how long I was down there fighting that case. And when I came home, I had this vision of uh, uh, getting all the clubs together, at least uh, a begrudging piece, if you will. And I got a moratorium with all the clubs at one time for no violence. And how is that negotiated? Well, you know, I went and talked to uh, the outlaws. I showed up unannounced. I found out where their leader was. He was there with a group of people. I showed up. They were completely shocked, and they, you know, because we were killing each other. And they said, what are you doing here? And I said, I want to talk to Taco. That was uh, – Harry Bowman mm-hmm. was their leader. And they said, wait here. And they kind of surrounded me. Harry Taco Bowman came out. He always wore a black bandana, so I knew it was him. I'd heard about his black bandana. I'd never seen him before. And he had a smile on his face. So when I saw the smile on his face, I thought, well, that's a good sign. And he goes, what are you doing here? He goes, you're crazy. And I said, I came here to talk to you. And he goes, about what? And I said, we need to put this war behind us. We started negotiating, and, uh, uh, you know, we had a moratorium for two years till he put a murder contract mm-hmm. on me. Well, that's, that, that's <laughs> tough to live with. What, right? what a way to end a moratorium. Huh? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit now about uh, about Outlaw. The Outlaws, is it the name it's of Outlaw. it? It's Outlaw. Outlaw, yeah. the uh, production. My of, Life and Beyond, okay. in the Hells Angels and Beyond. Uh, how, it's a one-man show. How is How do you portray your life in a one-man show? Well, I'll tell you. I If anybody saw my television show, Outlaw Chronicles, I took mm-hmm. my television show. For my television show, I learned a lot about myself on the air uh, doing this show on the History Channel. I wrote a book called uh, – uh, 
exile on Front Street because the club had exiled me. And from there, I decided I – I wrote a couple other books, but I thought I'm going to take the Outlaw Chronicles. I'm going to take my book, Exile, and I'm going to turn it into a stage play. But I'm going to try to figure out and convey to the audience what motivated me to choose the paths uh, and make the decisions mm-hmm. I did. And that's what the play's all about. Uh, and, and are you just on stage by myself talking, for two hours? Or, or, oh, it's, like there's lights, there's music. Uh, I it's it's not a lecture. It's it's I acted out uh, similar to the television show. You you uh, did not write it. No, yeah. uh, Richard Lapant took my book and created a, a, a stage uh, drama, stage play, if you will, out of it. He also wrote uh, some music he for did. this, and, and we have that. I'd like to play a little clip of it uh, because it's it's quite different. It let's, is. let's listen to that and come back to it and talk more about okay. the play. Hey, outlaw, where you going? You're looking for that old man, John. Well, he's gone. He took one last pull on that big cigar. And he cranked his throttle and took off. Down the road. That's a little different. That's quite a sound. And that's, well, it is. That that is uh, Laplante. Is that his name? Yeah, Richard, Richard Laplante, personal friend of mine. Uh, he he wrote it, and that is him uh, performing. He he was fiddling around on the guitar, and my manager Charles said, "Can you do a little more?" And Richard's a bigger ham than me, mm-hmm. and uh, he started playing, and then he came up with these lyrics. Uh, uh, you know, we talk about he talks about Old Man John. Old Man John was my mentor. He was a leader of the Los Angeles Hells Angels, and. I go in depth about how I met him and my impression of him and what he did for me. How do you explain you, – you've, you've already talked about this here, but how do you explain on stage your decision to uh, to quit? Well, it's, it's very uh, uh, profound. I go to prison in 2001, 2002. I spent a year in solitary confinement. And my mother's dying this whole time and uh, – it's terrible in solitary confinement, oldest form of torture, sensory deprivation, and I really get in depth about it. And the Red Cross came to tell me my mom was ready to pass, and uh, I was really angry. And uh, the priest said, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, will you pray with me? And I said, no, I won't pray for you, with you, but you can pray. <laughs> and uh, it kind of builds from that moment. I said I wanted to get my religion on the street. I wanted my eyes open and my epiphany on the street when I had my power, my money, and everything that went along with it. And when I came back from that stay in prison, my mom passed. The Twin Towers had fallen. And I even say it, and maybe the Brotherhood and the club had fallen. The club had – I looked at the club differently when I came back. And it took me another 10 years to leave. 
But it was you, you had said uh, a while back that uh, one of the things that bothered you was that the, the the bikers weren't building their own bikes anymore. Well, you know, I had lunch with Willie Davidson one time, and I, you know, him and I were joking, and I said, you know, Willie, in the old days, I go, you guys used to cringe when we came in the Harley shop, so they didn't want anything to do with this. We were the one percent that had been labeled uh, the people that ruined it for the wholesome writers. And that was the image Harley was trying to portray. And uh, I said, now you sell the bikes like we build. You sell the leather jackets with the sleeves cut off. You sell the chaps. And uh, I go, you're selling an outlaw image. And uh, I said, you owe us money. I was joking with him. Mm -hmm. And he laughed. You know, and he said, okay, I'm going to buy you lunch. And he goes, we're even now. But in the old days, you had to build your own bike. And everybody that rode built their own bike. Everybody knew each other. Everybody had a moniker and mm -hmm. uh, uh it uh, it slowly evolved out of that live and let live society where people were getting in the club. They were going to the Harley shops, buying the bikes, felt entitled, had something coming. So the Harley was the bike of choice for the Hells Angels? It was the only bike you could ride. It was a rule. You had to ride an American-made motorcycle. Well, I'm sure you're paying attention to the news these days. Harley's, Harley is in the news big time with a well, conflict with the president. You know, they actually uh, quoted my blog from a year ago. I wrote uh, a blog uh, about President Trump that uh, I felt uh, – I guess I, I don't know if we should get political or not, but I'm not a big Trump supporter. I never was. And I asked all the bikers for Trump. I wrote a blog and I said, you people better be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. And uh, apparently it uh, came to fruition. Well, they've had some. Uh, they've had quite an exchange. Uh, the, oh, they the, have. The president of the uh, of, of Harley called him a moron the other day. Well, I think I said that a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, where do you go from here, George? Well, I'm going back home. Uh, we're doing a, uh, a six week run in Los Angeles, and uh, we're refining everything. This has uh, been the first tour we were on. Just came from Vegas, where we were. Uh, told uh, we were one of the top choices uh, of entertainment for last weekend. Uh, you know, we had a great run there, mm -hmm. received very well, uh, did your uh, NPR station there as well. And uh, I just uh, want to continue. I'm hoping that uh, we can get to New York and, uh, you know, just keep making the play better and better. As you look at the, uh, the your former organization, uh uh, has it changed in other ways? You you mentioned uh, you know that, that there are some differences today, but are they a different organization today than they were twenty five years ago? I'd have to say absolutely yes. yes. Are, are they a better organization? Are they you know more mindful? I think of uh, of, of less vicious and criminal ways. I, I don't know. You know, I I think I'll reserve my comment. Uh, I think that I don't. Uh, I'm no longer a member of the Hell's Angel. I don't think it's appropriate for me to talk about uh, uh, their position or where they're coming from. I uh, I've stated publicly in my television show and in my book and in the stage play what you know what I think. But I I think if they want to. Uh, respond to the things that I put in the media, I think it's up to them to do it. And it's not up to me to be an advocate one way or another. For it's, been, it's been quite a life, obviously. If you had it all to do over again, would you go the same route? I absolutely would. You would? Yeah, I, you know. It's hard to treat, teach an old dog new tricks, I guess. Even, even knowing what you, you know now? You do well, it. you know, I've got to tell you, when I, I walked into that culture, uh, you know, there's nothing like riding one of those motorcycles that you hand-built. You know, I always saw motorcycles as a work of art, an extension of myself. And uh, 
I'd like to see the outlaw bike clubs and the bike club, uh, the bike culture go back, go back, you know, five decades maybe. Well, George Christie, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Fascinating discussion. I'll remind folks that uh, Outlaw will be performed tonight and tomorrow night at 8 o'clock at the Playhouse at Westport. Tickets still available? They are. All right, George Christie, thank you. Good luck to you. Thank you. Right. Appreciate it. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. Programs produced by Alex Hoyer, Evie Hemphill, and Lara Hamden. Today we say goodbye to producer Larry Hamden. She's been with St. Louis Public Radio for more than a year in both the news department and with the St. Louis On the Air team. We wish her all the best as she pursues new opportunities overseas. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.